348, chapters 26 and 27. Welcome to Craplet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 348, Down to the Wire. This episode brought to you by Survival Organs, handmade organs to throw, love, or cuddle. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And March Hair Yarns, hand-dyed yarn just for you. You can visit the March Hair at Etsy. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. Links to all of our sponsors' pages can be found in the show notes at craftlit.com. Remember, their support for the show is what keeps it free for you. So go take a look. Well, hello. Yes, down to the wire. I love it when time and circumstance (laughs) make such a perfect title for a podcast episode. We are getting down to the wire in the living in Sparta world. There are only a few more weeks left until the end of June, at which point the boys and I will load up the U-Haul and get out of Dodge, which is great. A lot of things have to happen before that point, though, but that's fine, too. But the other thing that's down to the wire is, you know, I am often a little late to the party. In this case, I'm like 11 years late to the party. But we didn't have HBO when The Wire was on. (laughs) And now we do have Amazon Prime. And my husband, what with him being all alone up in Pennsylvania, started watching The Wire. And then when he came to visit, he showed me The Wire. And now I am like a junkie. It's horrible. It's exactly what happened with Breaking Bad. I know. It's, you know, an addictive personality thing, I'm sure. <laughs> Let's just be happy that one of the things I'm addicted to is podcasting. But oh my gosh, the writing on this thing. If you can, if you are not bothered by a lot of swearing and cursing, then you'll be fine because the writing and the storytelling is fascinatingly done. The people are so complicated. People who you really, really do not like all of a sudden they do something really nice or smart or kind or generous. And that makes you stop and go, hmm, hmm. So there's the wire and there's the move. And then there's the fact that once the move happens, I must have come up with a new tagline for the opening of the show. (laughs) We started in Croton on Hudson on the shores of the Hudson River in the charming village of Croton-on-Hudson. And then we went to the Old Pueblo. And now we're on the banks of the Potomac. And now I'm about to move to New Hope, Pennsylvania, on the shores of the Delaware. But, uh, you know, I'm not sure. There's Washington's Crossing, or Washington Crossing, which is just a little bit south of us. And it is actually, I know, I was shocked, the place where Washington crossed the Delaware, I don't know if that should be in the title. I don't know. I haven't, mm, I haven't come up with a solution yet. But New Hope, Pennsylvania is across the river from Lambertville, New Jersey. And I know New Jersey has a lot of jokes made about it, but Lambertville is really awesomely beautiful. And, and on the Delaware River, which, you know, it's pretty. It's really pretty right there. So, you know, along with the other stuff that I'm working on, I'm, coming up with the tagline. So there's that. There's the giveaway. There's the rag rug book giveaway that's going on. And there's another wire thing. I went and did a ropes course. I didn't used to be afraid of heights, at least not until I had children. And then I started to notice that I really didn't want to be up, you know, on any ledges anywhere very often. So my my 10-year-old a year ago, had gotten everybody to go on a ropes course up in Syracuse, New York, had gotten out onto the first 
thing that you walk out from and completely freaked out and bottlenecked the whole thing. And it was, it was a disaster. This time he, he really wanted to go. He really wanted to prove that he could do it. And so I said, all right, well, I will go with you and we will go together. And he said, okay. And so, you know, my 13, almost 14 year old, he just went winging his way across. He is a monkey. He, he's good on rock walls. He's great on ropes courses. He just goes do, 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 do. And he's tromping all over the place. The 10 year old and I were a little more cautious, but the 10 year old scooted right past me and had a ball. And I stood on that first platform and the poor guy who was working up there, he said, really, I promise you, the first step is the hardest. Once you make that first step, it's really not bad. You will be fine. And he, you know, showed me how we are, we are really tethered to the metal and it's, we're not going to go anywhere and we're in harnesses and it's perfectly safe. And I went, mm, 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 mm. and he was right. The first step was the hardest. And once I made the first step, it was so much easier. And so we were climbing all over the ropes and swinging around like crazy monkeys. And we had a great time. So that was, that was a lot of fun. And there we were, you know, walking on a wire. And I'll tell you, I walked away with a lot of respect for tightrope walkers and Philippe Petit, the guy who walked between the World Trade Center towers and the Chartres Cathedral towers and I, or Notre Dame. I guess it was Notre Dame. He, walked across. Oh my goodness. I cannot believe. I cannot believe someone did that. It's insane. <laughs> and I was tethered to metal and I was, my heart stopped a few times, but it was a lot of fun once we were done and back on the ground. It was uh, pretty nice to be able to look up and go, yeah, I did that. So there is a goofy picture of me and uh, and our friends and, and my kids all in front of the ropes course, which I have put onto the show notes so that you can see that I, in fact, am wearing a harness and still smiling <laughs> after coming down. And I am also smiling about going to Uniquities. That is our local yarn store in Vienna, Virginia, or Vienna, Virginia. I think I'm speaking at 10.30, 10.30 to noon on June 21st now. So if you are in the area, please get a hold of the good people at Uniquities and let them know that you will be coming by for the cognitive anchoring talk. I am also toying because I've been getting emails from people saying, oh, I really wanted to be able to come, but I couldn't come. I didn't make it to Yarn Cloud and I'm not sure if I'm going to make it to Uniquities and life is trouble and things are happening all at once. I am toying with the idea of taking my little PowerPoint presentation and talk and converting it into a recorded webinar that you could watch online. So if you are at all interested in this, you'll see that there is a little poll in the show notes for this week. Let me know. It's just a simple click. Let me know if you are interested or not in what it would look like to see uh, the cognitive anchoring talk done as an online webinar, something that you could watch when you want to watch it. Or if you would prefer it as an e-course where there's conversation and discussion and digitally delivered, I guess, lessons really is what it would come down to. I'm curious to see if that would fill the void for those of you who can't make it to one of the talks. Or of course, you know, you can have your local yarn store or guild have me come out to you and I will meet, greet, bring finished objects and give the talk. As I mentioned last week, uh, Bleak House, the first four bundles of Bleak House are up in the shop. There is a link to those bundles on the show notes. And if you're at all interested, you might want to go get them before Sunday night because prices will be changing Sunday night as we rebuild the shop. Uh, we're starting to kind of normalize a lot of things that were fairly haphazard in the past and get a system going. So shop upgrading and, and oh my goodness, I found something on Pinterest that has rocked my world. I know this is going to sound ridiculous, but you know, I've been going through this move. <laughs> I know, you know, I've been going through this move. And one of the things that becomes problematic when one is moving things from place to place in this modern age is power cords and connector cords and all that stuff because they can go missing very, very easily. And worse, they can 
get separated from the thing they are supposed to power. And what have I learned in the last two months? I have learned that not all power adapters and not all cords are created equal. They may fit your Android phone and your Kindle, but they may not be providing the same amount of charge. And there are two different things. There's the volts, but there's also the amps. And I could not get my very old school uh, Kindle, you know, no backlight, just, just a regular Kindle that looks like newsprint type on the screen. I could not get it to take a charge. I could not figure out what's going on. And it's a thing, suddenly not being able to get an old Kindle to take a charge. And so I, I looked it up online and I found out that it's a a nine amp adapter. So it's, it's putting out nine amps, which I don't know if that's a lot or not. I don't remember from my electrics class at UCLA in the theater department. But what I do know is this, while the cord fit and everything looked like it was normal and standard issue, the adapter that I was actually trying to use was a four amp adapter instead of a nine amp. And we dug around all over the place and I finally found a nine amp adapter and the Kindle started to charge. So that is all tangentially related to the thing I'm, bring, I'm bringing to your attention. I must have seen this on Pinterest. I can't imagine I came up with this on my own. Taking cords, wrap them up, you know, so that they look like a, like the way a package of shoelaces would come, kind of figurated over each other. And then take a toilet paper tube or cut up a paper towel tube and stick the cord through that so that the tube actually becomes kind of the center of the little wire bow. Now it looks like a little wire bow. And then on that paper tube, you can take a marker and write what that cord belongs to. And then depending on how close everything is in your house, if you don't have the cords all the way stretched out, you can leave those tubes on with the labels on them. And that keeps them from getting tangled and from getting in the way of each other and from when you have to randomly and haphazardly disconnect things in order to power cycle your whatever it is, now everything is labeled. For a long time, I was using masking tape and I would put masking tape at the end and write on there with a Sharpie, you know, this is the Sony Handycam or this is the speaker or whatever. And I found that over time, Sharpie marker decays, as does masking tape. And so now I have quite a few cables that have masking tape on them and no writing. And, and the masking tape is getting kind of gummy and sticky and gross. And I'm out of luck. So the tube solution is working quite well. And I have a picture of a sample on the show notes for you. And the Sharpie marker thing brings us to, I'm just finding that tonight is flowing like electricity through a wire. <laughs> Okay, that was completely cheesy, but but it is. It's all connecting, just like things that are wired together. Quite a few of you wrote in or wrote to me or put comments in the show notes about what to do about that laminated board that I want to zentangle. And two solutions appear to be probably the best. One was uh, Lorna. I think it was Lorna wrote in and said, uh, do it on paper do it on paper and then like mod podge it, decoupage it to the board. That way, if you screw something up on the paper, you can, you can redo it and you don't have to worry about it. And, uh, and then you get kind of a texture out of it and it doesn't have that, that weird, shiny kind of fakey plasterboardy quality to it. So that's one option. And then Sally wrote in and mentioned that Sharpies, even though they say they are permanent, they really aren't. And that you need to find an archival quality ink that is, you know, acid or pH neutral and is not going to decay over time. Micron pens do fit that bill, uh, but I'm going to have to test the micron pens on that board, which I will be able to do this coming weekend. While you are listening to this, I will actually be up in Pennsylvania filming a demonstration videotape of a bunch of different lesson plan 
plans for this educational resource that I've been working on for the last six months. And I'm kind of looking forward to that because I get to be in Pennsylvania with my husband and family. And it will be my son's 14th birthday, the day that you hear this, and my sister's birthday, actually. So happy birthday, everybody. And I will be able to test out the pen quality when I'm up there. And I'll, I'll report back and let you know what I find out. So, book talk. I am so excited by today's chapters. We have two, and they are the first two of the second volume. So they're volume two, chapters one and two, or chapter 26 and 27, depending on which version of the book you actually have. And today's chapters are actually kind of exciting because, because there are actual textiles in them. It's like, woo! <laughs> Here we are. Ah, at last. But we start today with poor Mr. Thornton, who is kind of behaving like a stubborn teenage boy. And it's it's kind of adorable. And of course, it's terribly heartbreaking. And as he goes off and has his way of dealing with everything, his mother, you may recall, is sitting at home, assuming that he and Margaret are getting married. So she is preparing for that adventure. And really, it's a lovely scene because she goes through a whole, a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of activities to try and pass the time, but also kind of to deal with what's about to happen, she thinks. And I had actually recorded a whole bunch of information about what Mrs. Thornton is doing while she is waiting to see John. And then I realized it would kind of spoil things for you because there's nothing that she's going to do or say that you really need to know about in advance, but there's a lot of stuff you'll find is really cool after. So I have gone through and edited and tried to take out all the future tense and put in past tense, but I don't know if I caught it all. So if, if I didn't, please forgive my tense switching. All right. Well, without spending any more time talking about it, I am going to turn you over to our reader so we can listen to chapters 26 and 27 of North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. Chapter 26 Mother and Son I have found that holy place of rest still changeless. Mrs. Hemans When Mr. Thornton had left the house that morning, he was almost blinded by his baffled passion. He was as dizzy as if Margaret, instead of looking and speaking and moving like a tender, graceful woman, had been a sturdy fishwife and given him a sound blow with her fists. He had positive bodily pain, a violent headache, and a throbbing, intermittent pulse. He could not bear the noise, the garish light, the continued rumble and movement of the street. He called himself a fool for suffering so, and yet he could not, at the moment, recollect the cause of his suffering and whether it was adequate to the consequences it had produced. It would have been a relief to him if he could have sat down and cried on a doorstep by a little child who was raging and storming through his passionate tears at some injury he had received. He said to himself that he hated Margaret, but a wild, sharp sensation of love cleft his dull, thunderous feeling like lightning, even as he shaped the words expressive of hatred. His greatest comfort was in hugging his torment and in feeling, as he had indeed said to her, that though she might despise him, condemn him, treat him with her proud sovereign indifference. He did not change one whit. She could not make him change. He loved her and would love her and defy her and this miserable bodily pain. He stood still for a moment to make this resolution firm and clear. There was an omnibus passing, going into the country. The conductor thought he was wishing for a place and stopped near the pavement. It was too much trouble to apologize and explain, so he mounted upon it and was borne away, past long rows of houses, then past detached villas with trim gardens, till they came to real country hedgerows, and, by and by, to a small country town 
Then everybody got down, and so did Mr. Thornton, and because they walked away, he did so too. He went into the fields, walking briskly, because the sharp motion relieved his mind. He could remember all about it now, the pitiful figure he must have cut, the absurd way in which he had gone and done the very thing he had so often agreed with himself in thinking would be the most foolish thing in the world, and had met with exactly the consequences which, in these wise moods, he had always foretold were certain to follow if he ever did make such a fool of himself. Was he bewitched by those beautiful eyes, that soft, half-open, sighing mouth which lay so close upon his shoulder only yesterday? He could not even shake off the recollection that she had been there, that her arms had been round him once, if never again. He only caught glimpses of her. He did not understand her altogether. At one time she was so brave, and at another so timid, now so tender, and then so haughty and regal proud. And then he thought over every time he had ever seen her once again, by way of finally forgetting her. He saw her in every dress, in every mood, and did not know which became her best. Even this morning, how magnificent she had looked, her eyes flashing out upon him at the idea that, because she had shared his danger yesterday, she had cared for him in the least. If Mr. Thornton was a fool in the morning, as he assured himself at least twenty times he was, he did not grow much wiser in the afternoon. All that he gained in return for his sixpenny omnibus ride was a more vivid conviction that there never was never could be anyone like Margaret. That she did not love him and never would, but that she, no, nor the whole world, should never hinder him from loving her. And so he returned to the little marketplace and remounted the omnibus to return to Milton. It was late in the afternoon when he was set down near his warehouse. The accustomed places brought back the accustomed habits and trains of thought. He knew how much he had to do, more than his usual work owing to the commotion of the day before. He had to see his brother magistrates. He had to complete the arrangements, only half made in the morning, for the comfort and safety of his newly imported Irish hands. He had to secure them from all chance of communication with the discontented workpeople of Milton. Last of all, he had to go home and encounter his mother. Mrs. Thornton had sat in the drawing-room all day, every moment expecting the news of her son's acceptance by Miss Hale. She had braced herself up many and many a time at some sudden noise in the house, had caught up the half-dropped work and begun to ply her needle diligently, though through dimmed spectacles and with an unsteady hand. And many times had the door opened and some indifferent person entered on some insignificant errand. Then her rigid face unstiffened from its grey, frost-bound expression, and the features dropped into the relaxed look of despondency, so unusual to their sternness. She wrenched herself away from the contemplation of all the dreary changes that would be brought about to herself by her son's marriage. She forced her thoughts into the accustomed household grooves. The newly married couple-to-be would need fresh household stocks of linen. And Mrs. Thornton had clothes-basket upon clothes-basket, full of tablecloths and napkins brought in, and began to reckon up the store. There was some confusion between what was hers, and consequently marked G.H.T. for George and Hannah Thornton, and what was her son's, bought with his money, marked with his initials. Some of those marked G.H.T. were Dutch damask of the old kind, exquisitely fine. None were like them now. Mrs. Thornton stood looking at them long. They had been her pride when she was first married. Then she knit her brows and pinched and compressed her lips tight and carefully unpicked the G.H.
She went so far as to search for the turkey-red marking thread to put in the new initials, but it was all used, and she had no heart to send for any more just yet. So she looked fixedly at vacancy, a series of visions passing before her, in all of which her son was the principal, the sole object, her son, her pride, her property. Still, he did not come. Doubtless he was with Miss Hale. The new love was displacing her already from her place as first in his art. A terrible pain, a pang of vain jealousy shot through her. She hardly knew whether it was more physical or mental, but it forced her to sit down. In a moment she was up again as straight as ever a grim smile upon her face for the first time that day, ready for the door opening and the rejoicing triumphant one who should never know the sore regret his mother felt at his marriage. In all this, there was little thought enough of the future daughter-in-law as an individual. She was to be John's wife. To take Mrs. Thornton's place as mistress of the house was only one of the rich consequences which decked out the supreme glory. All household plenty and comfort, all purple and fine linen, honor, love, obedience, troops of friends, would all come as naturally as jewels on a king's robe and be as little thought of for their separate value. To be chosen by John would separate a kitchen wench from the rest of the world. And Miss Hale was not so bad. If she had been a Milton lass, Mrs. Thornton would have positively liked her. She was pungent and had taste and spirit and flavor in her. True, she was sadly prejudiced and very ignorant, but that was to be expected from her southern breeding. A strange sort of mortified comparison of Fanny with her went on in Mrs. Thornton's mind, and for once she spoke harshly to her daughter, abused her roundly, and then, as if by way of penance, she took up Henry's commentaries and tried to fix her attention on it. Instead of pursuing the employment she took pride and pleasure in and continuing her inspection of the table linen, his step at last, she heard him, even while she thought she was finishing a sentence. While her eye did pass over it, and her memory could mechanically have repeated it word for word, she heard him come in at the hall door. Her quickened sense could interpret every sound of motion. Now he was at the hat-stand, now at the very room door. Why did he pause? Let her know the worst. Yet, her head was down over the book. She did not look up. He came close to the table and stood still there, waiting till she should have finished the paragraph which apparently absorbed her. By an effort, she looked up. Well, John? He knew what that little speech meant, but he had steeled himself. He longed to reply with a jest, the bitterness of his heart could have uttered one, but his mother deserved better of him. He came round behind her so that she could not see his looks, and bending back her grey stony face, he kissed it, murmuring, No one loves me, no one cares for me but you, mother. He turned away and stood leaning his head against the mantelpiece, tears forcing themselves into his manly eyes. She stood up. She tottered. For the first time in her life, the strong woman tottered. She put her hands on his shoulders. She was a tall woman. She looked into his face. She made him look at her. Mother's love is given by God, John. It holds fast forever and ever. A girl's love is like a puff of smoke. It changes with every wind. And she would not have you, my own lad, would not she? She set her teeth. She showed them like a dog for the whole length of her mouth. He shook his head. I am not fit for her, mother. I knew I was not. She ground out words between her closed teeth. He could not hear what she said, 
but the look in her eyes interpreted it to be a curse, if not as coarsely worded, as fell in intent as ever was uttered. And yet her heart leapt up light to know he was her own again. Mother, said he hurriedly, I cannot hear a word against her. Spare me, spare me. I am very weak in my sore heart. I love her yet, I love her more than ever. And I hate her, said Mrs. Thornton in a low, fierce voice. I tried not to hate her when she stood between you and me, because I said to myself, she will make him happy and I would give my heart's blood to do that. But now, I hate her for your misery's sake. Yes, John, it's no use hiding up your aching heart from me. I'm the mother that bore you, and your sorrow is my agony, and if you don't hate her, I do. Then, mother, you make me love her more. She is unjustly treated by you, and I must make the balance even. But why do we talk of love or hatred? She does not care for me, and that is enough. Too much. Let us never name the subject again. It is the only thing you can do for me in the matter. Let us never name her. With all my heart, I only wish that she and all belonging to her were swept back to the place they came from. He stood still, gazing into the fire for a minute or two longer. Her dry, dim eyes filled with unwanted tears as she looked at him, but she seemed just as grim and quiet as usual when he next spoke. Warrants are out against three men for conspiracy, mother. The riot yesterday helped to knock up the strack. And Margaret's name was no more mentioned between Mrs. Thornton and her son. They fell back into their usual mode of talk, about facts, not opinions, far less feelings. Their voices and tones were calm and cold. A stranger might have gone away and thought that he had never seen such frigid indifference of demeanor between such near relations. Chapter 27 Fruit Peace for never anything can be amiss when simpleness and duty tender it. Midsummer Night's Dream Mr. Thornton went straight and clear into all the interests of the following day. There was a slight demand for finished goods, and as it affected his branch of the trade, he took advantage of it and drove hard bargains. He was sharp to the hour at the meeting of his brother magistrates, giving them the best assistance of his strong sense and his power of seeing consequences at a glance, and so coming to a rapid decision. Older men, men of long standing in the town, men of far greater wealth, realized and turned into land, while his was all floating capital, engaged in his trade, looked to him for prompt, ready wisdom. He was the one deputed to see and arrange with the police, to lead in all the requisite steps, and he cared for their unconscious deference no more than for the soft west wind that scarcely made the smoke from the great tall chimneys swerve in its straight upward course. He was not aware of the silent respect paid to him. If it had been otherwise, he would have felt it as an obstacle in his progress to the object he had in view. As it was, he looked to the speedy accomplishment of that alone. It was his mother's greedy ears that sucked in from the womenkind of these magistrates and wealthy men how highly Mr. This or Mr. That thought of Mr. Thornton, that if he had not been there things would have gone on very differently, very badly indeed. He swept off his business right and left that day. It seemed as though his deep mortification of yesterday and the stunned, purposeless course of the hours afterwards had cleared away all the mists from his intellect. He felt his power and reveled in it. He could almost defy his heart. If he had known it, he could have sang the song of the miller who lived by the River Dee. I care for nobody. Nobody cares for me. The evidence against Boucher and other ringleaders of the riot was taken before him. That against the three others for conspiracy failed, but he sternly charged the police to be on the watch, 
for the swift right arm of the law should be in readiness to strike as soon as they could prove a fault. And then he left the hot, reeking room in the borough court and went out into the fresher but still sultry street. It seemed as though he gave way all at once. He was so languid that he could not control his thoughts. They would wander to her. They would bring back the scene, not of his repulse and rejection the day before, but the looks, the actions of the day before that. He went along the crowded streets mechanically, winding in and out among the people, but never seeing them. Almost sick with longing for that one half hour, that one brief space of time when she clung to him and her heart beat against his, to come once again. Well, Mr. Thornton, you're cutting me very coolly, I must say. And how is Mrs. Thornton? Brave weather this. We doctors don't like it, I can tell you. I beg your pardon, Dr. Donaldson. I really didn't see you. My mother's quite well, thank you. It is a fine day, and good for the harvest, I hope. If the wheat is well got in, we shall have a brisk trade next year, whatever you doctors have. Aye, aye, each man for himself. Your bad weather and your bad times are my good ones. When trade is bad, there's more underman and a wealth in preparation for death going on among your Milton men than you're aware of. Not with me, doctor. I'm made of iron. The news of the worst bad debt I ever had never made my pulse vary. This strike, which affects me more than anyone else in Milton, more than Amper, never comes near my appetite. You must go elsewhere for a patient, doctor. By the way, you recommended me a good patient, poor lady. Not to go on talking in this artless way, I seriously believe that Mrs. Hale, that lady in Crampton, you know, hasn't many weeks to live. I never had any hope of a cure, as I think I told you, but I've been seeing her today, and I think very badly of her. Mr. Thornton was silent. The vaunted steadiness of pulse failed him for an instant. Can I do anything, doctor? he asked in an altered voice. You know, you would see that money is not very plentiful. Are there any comforts or dainties she ought to have? No replied the doctor, shaking his head. She craves for fruit. She has a constant fever on her, but jargonelle pears will do as well as anything, and there are quantities of them in the market. You will tell me if there is anything I can do, I'm sure, replied Mr. Thornton. I rely upon you. Oh, never fear. I'll not spare your purse. I know it's deep enough. I wish you'd give me carte blanche for all my patients and all their wants. But Mr. Thornton had no general benevolence, no universal philanthropy. Few even would have given him credit for strong affections. But he went straight to the first fruit shop at Milton and chose out the bunch of purple grapes with the most delicate bloom upon them, the richest colored peaches, the freshest vine leaves, they were packed into a basket, and the shopman awaited the answer to his inquiry. Where shall we send them to, sir? There was no reply. To Marble Mills, I suppose, sir? No, Mr. Thornton said. Give the basket to me. I'll take it. It took up both his hands to carry it, and he had to pass through the busiest part of the town for feminine shopping. Many a young lady of his acquaintance turned to look after him and thought it strange to see him occupied just like a porter or errand boy. He was thinking, I will not be daunted from doing as I choose by the thought of her. I like to take this fruit to the poor mother, and it is simply right that I should. She shall never scorn me out of doing what I please. A pretty joke indeed if, for fear of a haughty girl, I failed in doing a kindness to a man I like. I'd do it for Mr. Ale. I'd do it in defiance of her. He went at an unusual pace and was soon at Crampton. He went upstairs two steps at a time and entered the drawing room before Dixon could announce him, his face flushed, his eyes shining with kindly earnestness. 
Mrs. Hale lay on the sofa heated with fever. Mr. Hale was reading aloud. Margaret was working on a low stool by her mother's side. Her heart fluttered if his did not at this interview. But he took no notice of her, hardly of Mr. Hale himself. He went up straight with his basket to Mrs. Hale and said, in that subdued and gentle tone which is so touching when used by a robust man in full health, speaking to a feeble invalid, I met Dr. Donaldson, ma'am, and, as he said fruit would be good for you, I have taken the liberty, the great liberty, of bringing you some that seemed to me fine. Mrs. Hale was excessively surprised, excessively pleased, quite in a tremble of eagerness. Mr. Hale, with fewer words, expressed a deeper gratitude. Fetch a plate, Margaret, a basket, anything. Margaret stood up by the table, half afraid of moving or making any noise to arouse Mr. Thornton into a consciousness of her being in the room. She thought it would be awkward for both to be brought into conscious collision, and fancied that, from her being on a low seat at first, and now standing behind her father, he had overlooked her in his haste. As if he did not feel the consciousness of her presence all over, though his eyes had never rested on her. I must go, said he. I cannot stay, if you will forgive this liberty, my rough ways, too abrupt, I fear. But I will be more gentle the next time. You will allow me the pleasure of bringing you some fruit again, if I should see any that is tempting. Good afternoon, Mr. Ale. Goodbye, ma'am. He was gone. Not one word. Not one look to Margaret. She believed that he had not seen her. She went for a plate in silence and lifted the fruit out tenderly with the points of her delicate taper fingers. It was good of him to bring it, and after yesterday, too. Oh, it is so delicious, said Mrs. Hale in a feeble voice. A kind of him to think of me. Margaret, love, only taste these grapes. Was it not good of him? Yes, said Margaret quietly. Margaret, said Mrs. Hale rather querulously. You won't like anything Mr. Thornton does. I never saw anybody so prejudiced. Mr. Hale had been peeling a peach for his wife, and cutting off a small piece for himself, he said, If I had any prejudices, the gift of such delicious fruit as this would melt them all away. I have not tasted such fruit, no, not even in Hampshire, since I was a boy and to boys I fancy all fruit is good. I remember eating sloes and crabs with a relish. Do you remember the matted-up currant bushes, Margaret, at the corner of the west wall in the garden at home? Did she not? Did she not remember every weather stain on the old stone wall, the grey and yellow lichens that marked it like a map, the little crane's bill that grew in the crevices, she had been shaken by the events of the last two days. Her whole life just now was a strain upon her fortitude, and somehow these careless words of her father's, touching on the remembrance of the sunny times of old, made her start up, and dropping her sewing on the ground, she went hastily out of the room into her own little chamber. She had hardly given way to the first choking sob when she became aware of Dixon standing at her drawers and evidently searching for something. Bless me, miss, how you startled me. Missus is not worse, is she? Is anything the matter? No, nothing. Only, I'm, I'm silly, Dixon, and want a glass of water. What are you looking for? I keep my muslins in that drawer. Dixon did not speak, but went on rummaging. The scent of lavender came out and perfumed the room. At last, Dixon found what she wanted, what it was Margaret could not see. Dixon faced round and spoke to her. Now, I don't like telling you what I wanted, because you've fretting enough to go through, and I know you'll fret about this. 
I meant to have kept it from you till night, maybe, or such times as that. What is the matter? Pray tell me, Dixon, at once. That young woman you go to see, Iggins, I mean. Well? Well? She died this morning, and her sister is here, come to beg a strange thing. It seems young woman who died had a fancy for being buried in something of yours, and so the sisters come to ask for it, and I was looking for a nightcap that wasn't too good to give away. Oh, let me find one, said Margaret in the midst of her tears. Poor Bessie, I never thought I should not see her again. Why, that's another thing. This gale downstairs wanted me to ask you if you would like to see her. But she's dead, said Margaret, turning a little pale. I never saw a dead person. No, I would rather not. I should never have asked you if you hadn't come in. I told her you wouldn't. I will go down and speak to her, said Margaret, afraid lest Dixon's harshness of manner might wound the poor girl. So, taking the cap in her hand, she went to the kitchen. Mary's face was all swollen with crying, and she burst out afresh when she saw Margaret. Oh, ma'am, she loved you, she loved you, she did indeed. And for a long time, Margaret could not get her to say anything more than this. At last, her sympathy and Dixon's scolding forced out a few facts. Nicholas Higgins had gone out in the morning, leaving Bessie as well as on the day before. But in an hour she was taken worse. Some neighbor ran to the room where Mary was working. They did not know where to find her father. Mary had only come in a few minutes before she died. It were a day or two ago she asked to be buried in somewhat a yarn. She were never tired of talking to you. She used to say you were the prettiest thing she'd ever clapped eyes on. She loved you dearly. Her last words were, Give her my affectionate respects and keep father from drink. You'll come and see her, ma'am. She would have thought it a great compliment, I know. Margaret shrank a little from answering. Yes, perhaps I may. Yes, I, I will. I'll come before tea. But where's your father, Mary? Mary shook her head and stood up to be going. Miss Hale, said Dixon in a low voice, where's the use of your going to see the poor thing laid out? I'd never say a word against it if it could do the girl any good, and I wouldn't mind a bit going myself if that would satisfy her. They've just a notion, these common folk, of its being in respect to the departed. Here, she said, turning sharply round. I'll come and see your sister. Miss Ale is busy, and she can't come or else she would. The girl looked wistfully at Margaret. Dixon's coming might be a compliment, but it was not the same thing to the poor sister, who had had her little pangs of jealousy during Bessie's lifetime at the intimacy between her and the young lady. No, Dixon, said Margaret with decision. I will go. Mary, you shall see me this afternoon. And for fear of her own cowardice, she went away, in order to take from herself any chance of changing her determination. So... So there was some fruit, <laughs> there was some fruit discussed in this chapter, and I just wanted to make sure that we mentioned a few of them because I think Americans are probably not familiar with any of them. Mr. Hale talks about sloes and crabs. Sloes are the berries, the slow berries from the slow bush, which slow gin is made from, and uh, and crabs are crab apples. And both of them are rather tart. And uh, I think on the podcast a thousand years ago, I mentioned a recipe that I got from Brenda Dane over at Cast On for crab apple jelly and cheese. And we don't have access to crab apples here in the States. So I have been using the tartest apples I could find. And that seems to work fine. 
I don't know if it compares to the original. I imagine it doesn't completely, but it's pretty good and we like it. So there's that. But then there was another thing that got mentioned. The Jargonelle pears. These are pears that ripened early. And so they would have been in season before the other fruit was in season. And that was why the doctor specifically mentioned that kind of pear, not because it was, you know, had more healing properties or anything, just because there was a better chance of it being in the store. Oh, and there was the mention of the song of the miller. Poor Mr. Thornton, the song of the miller. I care for nobody. Nobody cares for me. Well, it turns out that these are actually the last lines of the song, the miller of D and the full part says, and this, the burden of his song forever used to be. I care for nobody. No, not I, and nobody cares for me. And this was uh, collected in a book called Songs for Music in 1856. So it was a folk song that people knew it was popular. And it's the River Dee spelled D-E-E. So that's where that came from. Right then, here is where I am inserting the section about Mrs. Thornton and her textiles and what she was up to while she was waiting for John to come home. So here we flip into that. One of the things she does is she pulls out the Dutch damask. These are her her fine linen napkins and, and things like that. And all of them have been labeled, embroider labeled, with her husband's and her name. So it's her husband's first name, her first name, and their combined last name, Thornton, which are the initials embroidered on there. She talks about Dutch damask. And she talks about how it's done in the old way and that nobody does it like that anymore. And she's so right that it is very hard to get a good picture of Dutch damask. But it was, as far as I can tell, a linen damask. And the way that it was made became kind of a thing in the early first half of the 1700s. And that, you know, there's the Dutch East India Company and the uh, Amsterdam and the, the whole Netherlands was really a massively important trade route for quite a while. And then it started to kind of go downhill. Well, this linen trade, this industry was part of what started to go downhill because other people figured out how to do it almost as well, but for cheaper, which, you know, for anyone who's been around long enough to watch economics rise and fall in countries, you know that this is one of those things that happens. People or or one country will be an innovator and they'll come up with a way to do it. And then somebody else will come up with a way to do it cheaper. So when Mrs. Thornton is talking about Dutch damask being done in the old way, she's not joking. It's a, it's a sign of two things. Well, probably three things. One, she knows her stuff. Two, this stuff has been around for a really long time and has been really well cared for. Because if it had her husband's initials on it, it must have come from his family or her family before they were married. Because, of course, they fell on hard times. And that means she kept it that whole time and kept it well, well enough that it can be used now and that people can recognize it for the quality that it is. And then the, the other thing is she's a thrifty woman and she hasn't gone out and bought new linens, even though she has her own factory and she could, you know, just commandeer whatever she wanted. She hasn't, which could also indicate that they don't make damask cloth at their factory, which seems pretty apparent. But, you know, it says a lot about her because you're going to hear her talking about uh, re-embroidering by, by herself, by the way, re-embroidering all of the linens for Margaret to become a member of the family, which is both wonderful of her, but also kind of a daunting undertaking. And then you'll also hear her talking about something called turkey red thread. And this was bugging me, so I had to go look this up. It turns out that red thread, historically speaking, was very difficult to use because it would bleed. The color red was a bleedy color, as we all know. However, in Turkey, they figured out a way to make color fast red thread, something which every housewife wanted to have access to. And so Turkey red thread was a thing. It is still a thing. You will still find people on the interwebs referring to Turkey red thread and also referring to red work 
in general. And it was because during this era, right exactly when we are having this book happen for us, uh, the, the rise of the ability to use white cotton or white linen and decorate it with actual red, not just backstitch, but split stitch decorations in order to kind of make these little red outlines. Uh, this was a, a thing and it continued to be a thing well into the 20th century. Some of the, uh, the penny squares that you can still find in antique and vintage shops, those are turkey red thread and different kinds of linen. It was a real thing. It was a big deal and, and pervasive. So much so that there's the Kensington school it was a girl's school. There's a stitch called the Kensington stitch. And that was the stitch that was predominantly used by young women who were embroidering for their trousseau or for themselves or for fun or whatever. And that is where that all came from. It's all kind of interrelated, wired together, as it were. You will also hear Mrs. Thornton pick up Henry's commentaries. Now, we've had this mentioned before as a dissenter's book. And it, it was, he was a Presbyterian minister, this Mr. Mr. Henry. Matthew Henry, he was born in 1662. He died young. He died in 1714. But he went through the entire Bible, all of the Old Testament, the Gospels, and I think the Acts and the Romans, I think. And he did line by line explanations. And his whole thing was kind of as a devotional. He wanted to take the line, explain the line, move along. And so it was absolutely understandable that if you were trying to pass the time, picking up Henry's commentaries would be not such a bad idea. And lest you think that we have no connection to Mr. Matthew Henry, I would like to read to you a line that you may have heard before. He said, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Dude, he wrote that before he died in 1714. What a progressive thought that is. How cool. I, you know, it's just, I love that. So I'm a fan of Henry now. <laughs> You can find, uh, you can find his commentaries online very easily. And I will link out to a page about him and a page of his commentaries as well if you want to check them out. And so that's all the, you know, prickly persnickety bits. But I have a question for you. Do you remember back quite a few chapters, Margaret insinuating that Thornton, because of the way he conducted his business, wasn't really Christian, that he wasn't, he wasn't particularly charitable? And have you noticed in these last two chapters, Thornton's behavior? Now, Gaskell has not made any comment, any direct comment about it, but I can't help feeling that consciously or not, some of Thornton's behavior is, I guess subconsciously, trying to achieve what it was that Margaret had been critical of him about before. He, he goes off on the omnibus and just goes for a walk out in the nature. And he knows that that's something Margaret does. And, and here he goes doing it. And, and he, he helps people and he's taking fruit to Mrs. Hale and he's being so kind and gentle with her. And it's, it's such a lovely scene of him ignoring Margaret entirely and, and being, being so generous of heart as well as action and, and pocket. And I, I kept thinking, huh, I wonder if this isn't just another version of what we all go through after a painful breakup where you try to prove that you were the right one, that you were the one that he should have stuck with or she should have stuck with. And, and that part of that proving is by doing the things that you used to do together or, uh, doing the things that you think they wanted you to do. And, and he's just such a little teenage boy, but with very good effect. You know, he, he's doing good things for people. He's helping people. He's being a good businessman, which is good for his workers, but he is also 
caring here. And I really liked that. And it is on that happy note that I will now leave you. I hope you have a great week. I hope I have a great week too. And I will talk to you on the flip side of this filming birthday Pennsylvania weekend. <laughs> I'll be back next week and bring you the next chapters. Take care. Have a great one. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher Radio. Like us on Facebook. Or leave a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Craftlet.com, or our dedicated Android, iOS, and Windows 8 app. You can use the same free Craftlet app to access premium subscriber content on the go. Craftlet is and has been made possible by the support of its listeners. And for that, I am truly grateful. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.